Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Welcome to the Least of These Podcasts. We reach out to those the world has forgotten. If you'd like to know more about us and how you can donate to help us fulfill our mission, go to hisloveministries.net. Thank you very much and God bless you. Change the words to count your many blessings. There's about a million and one, and it, you can even sing that with it. It goes right along with it. You can change it, say count them one by one, and say count your many blessings. There's about a million and one, and you know what? A million and one doesn't even begin to count how many blessings God has given us, does it? Doesn't even begin to do it. Well, let's look at John chapter ten again today. We're going to be in verse twenty-two today. We're getting back to this section. Uh, remember, Jesus has been talking about uh, how he's the great shepherd. It's amazing uh, what happens here is in John chapter 8, remember, Jesus says he's the light of the world and he restores sight to a man who was born basically without any eyes. He was born what they would call today congenitally blind, if I can say that word. But he was born basically blind and he had no eyes and and Jesus made brand new eyes for him. Told him he was the light of the world and he believed on Jesus Christ and was saved. And after he was saved, the uh, Pharisees came along and because he confessed Jesus as to Christ, they kicked him out of the synagogue. Kicked him out of the community, kicked him out of all of his friends and family. Nobody would have anything to do with him by that having been done. And so then Jesus proceeds to go find him, you know, and tells him who he is. And of course, that's when he's actually saved, but he shows that he's the good shepherd. And, and that's why he starts chapter 10 by saying, I am the good shepherd. Because the good shepherd goes and finds his sheep, right? He went and found the man who was blind. He went and found the man who had been kicked out of the synagogue by the other foes. He went and found this uh, sheep who was all alone and needed love and needed care. And then he goes on to talk about how he loves the sheep and the sheep follow him. And he lays down his life for the sheep, but he has power to take it up again. The last thing we talked about last week is in John chapter 10, back up to verse 19, he says, Therefore there was division again amongst the Jews because of these sayings, because he said he was from the Father and that he could lay down his life and take it up again. And then many among them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind man? So we're really still following along behind the story of the man being uh, healed and given brand new eyes. Remember, Jesus formed brand new eyes. And then the next section kind of starts, and it's about two or three months later, and it jumps in time, but this kind of continues the theme too because 
Notice what it says. It says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication, verse 22 of John chapter 10. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So basically what happens is it's two or three months later in time, but John kind of jumps right to this next section because really it continues the theme that Jesus is the light of the world. Because notice what it is. It's the Feast of Dedication. We all know the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah, as the Feast of Lights. It's around Christmas time, December, and you know they put one light in the window the first night, and they put a second light, and a third light. By the time they're through, they put, I think, eight lights in the window by the time it's through. And what these lights are a symbol of was back in the day there was a madman named. Maybe there's a little play on it too because they call him mad. And then the next thing that's spoken about is this feast of the Jews, the feast of lights. And there was this madman named Antiochus Epiphanes. It meant the great one, the you know the mighty one. And the Jews all called him Antiochus uh, Epimenes, which meant the madman. <laughs> they, had, they had a little play on the words. What he did was he came in and he desecrated the temple of the Jews and he sacrificed pigs in there and everything else. And if you know uh, Jewish history, that Jews were forbidden to eat pork and for them to have sacrificed pigs and done all that in the Jewish temple was just total abomination before God. And so what happened is finally there was a man named Judas Maccabeus. And all of this happened between the period of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where we really don't have any scripture written down. But that's called the intertestamental period. But there was a man named Judas Maccabeus And he led the Jews to a victory over this Antiochus Epiphanes. When he did, what they came back and did was they cleaned up the temple and they re-sanctified it by cleansing it and going through all the rituals that God specified to cleanse the temple. And apparently they found the oil to light the lamp because, you know, the light was supposed to always be lit inside the temple and that lit, it was lit with a special kind of oil. And that oil was symbol, symbolizing God's light to the world. And it spoke of the Holy Spirit, that oil did. Now what happened was they apparently what they tell anyway, I don't know if this is actually true, it's, it's, but the story they tell is they only had enough oil for one day to burn that, that candle. And it was supposed to be burning all the time, but God miraculously let it burn for eight days until they could prepare enough oil to keep it burning all the time. That's what they tell, and so God probably did that. I tell you all that, and that seems maybe like a lot of needless details, but I tell you all that to let you know that the whole reason this is mentioned is because here is Jesus the light of the world, walking in the temple, 
in Solomon's portico in the colonnade in this great mighty temple that Solomon built. And I was just reading about that a couple of days ago in in 2 Kings, I believe it was. And Solomon rebuilt this and he built this colonnade. And these were magnificent structures. They were magnificent. And, And what happened was this was the heyday of the kingdom of David because David had just died and Solomon his son came in behind and and he built the temple he restored the temple he built a house he built all these wonderful glorious things and it was kind of the heyday of Jerusalem and what more fitting thing could happen than for Jesus to be walking in that temple to be walking in in God's in Solomon's colonnade right there along this porch area that was closed in somewhat so that you could be protected from the elements because it tells you it's winter time and he's walking in there and he is the light of the world and and notice it says he came to Jerusalem see because Jerusalem is God's city Jerusalem is the place where God one day is coming back it is his beloved city and none other than the light of the world himself Jesus shows up at the Feast of Lights. So it continues that theme that Jesus is the light of the world. That's why I wanted to tell you all this background stuff because, see, when we read our Bible, there's nothing in here that is filler. There's absolutely nothing in this Bible that's filler. When God wrote this Bible through men, He put everything in here and every word, every whatever that's in here is all important, right? The Bible says all Scripture is inspired of God. Every bit of it's important. There's nothing written in here just to fill some pages. The ands, the ifs, the buts, all those things are important. Jesus said to the Jews, He said, not one jot, not one tittle is going to be removed from my word until all is fulfilled. In other words, that's how important His Word is. It's not the tiniest little dot, not the tiniest little squiggle that would go on a cue that is unimportant, but it's all important. And that's why I go so deep sometimes into the details. But He's walking in this, this area. The light of the world has come to Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. God Himself walking in the temple, walking in the portico, and notice what it says in verse 24. Then the Jews surrounded him. In other words, basically what they did is they encircled him, right? They confronted him. They encircled him. They confronted him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And really this if is one of these first class conditional ifs. And it means since you're the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, the implied answer is yes, you say you're the Christ. Well, tell us plainly. And you know what? They are expecting Jesus to come in, say something blasphemous. Now, we don't, there's been time after time after time Jesus has said he's God. Did you know that? Notice that word Christ. It really means the Messiah, the anointed one. And when, when that term is used, there was a problem with the Jews. You remember back in a few chapters earlier, after he uh, fed them with the bread, and what happened? 
They tried to make him king, right? Anybody remember that? Well, they tried to make him king, but you know what? Jesus didn't come to be king the first time, did He? He came to be a servant. He came to die on the cross so that when He died for our sins, that we could have eternal life. One day He's coming back to Jerusalem and He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two and He's going to stand on there and He's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Most High God and nobody will be able to stand in His way at that time. But this time God sent Jesus as a man. Jesus is God, but God the Father sent God the Son to do the work that would redeem us that would buy us back out of the slave market of sin. And so these Jews surround him with the intent because this term Messiah, this term Christ, it had, in the Jews' minds, it had political overtones. In other words, they thought, the Jews were confused. I don't know if you understand today or not, but the Jews are still looking for the Messiah to come. Did you know that? For Jesus Christ to come They are looking for Him to come. Why? Because they were looking for a mighty man. Uh, uh, They were looking for for the Messiah that's to come the second time. They weren't looking for the first time to, for a Messiah to come that would be one that was going to die on a cross, that was going to be beat, that was humble, who was meek, who was lowly. They were looking for a mighty man. When they thought of the Messiah... The political overtones behind it meant that they were looking for somebody who was going to come in and be king. That's why they wanted to make him king. It's because, guess what? That's what they thought was going to happen. I heard a Jewish guy tell it one time. He said they were looking for a Ben Judah and a Ben Joseph. And what happened is is the Jews thought there was going to be one person who was going to come as a servant And then there was going to be another person who was going to come as a king. And they thought they were two different people. And they still think that today. That's why they're still looking for the Messiah. But no, Jesus was here to die on the cross the first time. And they thought that if he said, I'm the Messiah, which he has kind of technically avoided saying he's the Christ, because guess what happens? If he says he's the Messiah, they want to make him king. But at this point, they hate him so bad. If he says he's the Messiah, you know what they're going to do? They're going to have him crucified. They're going to have him killed. And you know what? It it is not time for Jesus to go to the cross yet. So guess what? He, He will not use the term Messiah. But you know what he has done? All the way back in... I'm just going to read you a few verses. Because they say to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And then he says in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. So let me stop right there. Go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 23. It says, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. Chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus claimed to be God. Verse 20 to 30 in John chapter 5, He claimed to be the one who would raise the dead and then judge the dead. In chapter 6, verse 37 to 40, He claims to come down from heaven and to be the only source of eternal life. And then in chapter 8, verse 58, 
what does he say? He says, before Abraham was, I am, right? Chapter 9, he tells them, I am the door. Chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And if you read your Old Testament, you would know he's saying that he is God. And he has told them over and over and over again that he is God. And he tells them, he says, I told you and you do not believe. You just don't believe. There comes a point where sometimes people just don't believe what you tell them. We talked about this last week, right? You ever told somebody something and they just don't believe you? You know what? Is that why they call Missouri the show me state? Because nobody there believes. You know, you got to show me. Like I said, some people, you know, if God came down and told them, which God did come down and tell them right here, and they did not believe Him. He showed them all the miracles. I mean, who can who can cast out demons? Who can who can give a man brand new eyes? Who can still a storm? Who can feed fifteen or twenty thousand people with five loaves of bread and two little old fish? Who can walk on the water? Who can turn water into wine? Who can heal a man from fifteen miles away just with a word? He's healed. Heal the man's son. Who can heal a man who's been laying next to a pool 38 years? Only God, right? He has told him and told him and told him, but he's not going to say that he's the Messiah because guess what? As soon as he says that he's the Messiah, you know what happens? They That's right. They want to crucify him. Exactly right. He says, uh, I told you and you don't believe, but the works that I do in my Father's name. Notice he says, my Father's name again. You know, because the Jews would say what? Our Father. And when he says my Father, he is basically saying, I am equal with Him. When you say my Father, you're talking about your Father who you belong to right of you're part of them and they're part of you like I said in the old, uh, several chapters ago that when you talk about your father back in the old days y'all folks remember when, when the kids were growing up before they got shipped all over the countryside and everything changed that everybody grew up as families on a farm or together and whatever the father was the son was right if the father was a carpenter or a blacksmith or whatever he did, farmer, whatever he did, the son was that, right? And that's what Jesus keeps saying over and over again, is it my father? And he says, but you do not believe, verse 26, because you are not my sheep. But notice what he says, you do not believe the works that I show you. Now, we have here divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. And there's a thing in the Bible called election. And God has chosen people to go to heaven. God doesn't choose anybody without the people making a response. Because see, God loves everybody. He says God so loved the world that He died for everybody. Do you know that? He said, whosoever believes shall be saved. Do you know that? So that means whoever wants to come can come. And so here, he says you don't believe because guess what? On the human side of it, you don't want to believe. But then he says in the next verse, he says, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. That's the sovereign side of God choosing people to go to heaven. There's two sides to it. No matter what we do in life, when we're looking at God, 
There's always a human side and there's a God side. When he says, as we sing that old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. See, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you obey Him, then God does the things He wants to do in our life. But if you don't obey Him and follow Him like you ought to, guess what? We miss out on a lot of things that God wants to do in our life. Did you know that? But God wants to work mightily through all of us and in all of us. But we have to believe Him. We have to trust in Him. And I don't know how it all works because you know what? In the mind of God, it all works together. He's divine and He's sovereign. And whatever He wills happens. But He also says that I'm responsible. And if I don't trust Him, guess what? I'm going to hell because I didn't trust Him. Not because He didn't choose me. He says here, But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. As I said to you, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Comes back to again what he said in the previous section. My sheep hear my voice. The people who are truly saved, the people who truly believe in Christ, they hear His voice. You don't hear an audible voice, but you hear God speaking through this Word. You hear God as I preach. You hear God as you read or listen to somebody on the radio talk about the Word of God. You hear God speaking to you because He loves you and cares for you. And each and every one of us belong to Him that belong to Him that have trusted Him. We hear His voice. We follow Him. We know His voice. Because just as those sheep know His voice, they follow Him. And He says, and I give them eternal life. What is eternal life? It's forever, right? Some people talk about where you can lose your salvation. If if He said, I give them life for ten years, you would say, well, how long is that? I'm going to have life for ten years, right? If He said, I give you life for twenty years, you would say, well, you got life for twenty years. But eternal means eternal, forever, right? Isn't that what eternal means? He says, I give them. I give. The emphasis is on... I give. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. So He gives us eternal life. We have to receive it. My wife did an illustration at the place for the kids the other day. The young girls. and It's like this. If, If I come in and I bring you something and I hand it to you, and you take it, it's yours, right? But let's say I walk in here and I try to give you a gift and you say, nah, I don't want it. Or you start reaching in your purse or your wallet and you start saying, well, let me give you a couple of dollars on that. Does that mean that's no longer a gift, is it? But Jesus gave. He gave freely. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And He says He gives us eternal life. And they shall never perish. How can you perish if you got eternal life, right? And he says, Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Guess what? If Jesus is God, nobody can snatch you, right? That word snatch goes back to chapter 10, back in verse 12, where he says, 
when he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and, and scatters them. That's that same word where he, the wolf snatches, he catches. And he says, nobody can snatch. The wolf can't come. Nobody can come. Nobody can snatch us out of God's hand. I want to read y'all one section over here. I, I don't know if y'all know this section of Scripture, but John chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. And this is kind of where I want to end today. And we'll come back because he says in verse 29, My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So guess what? That, that means that you're in Jesus' hand, and you're also in God's hand. So you know what? You've got double protection, right? What well, does Allstate say? You're in good hands with Allstate. But you know what? You're in great hands with God because God the Father's got you, God the Son's got you, and nobody is greater than God, right? So if nobody's greater than God, can anybody take you? You, you can't walk out of his hand either. You know, some people say, well, nobody can snatch me, but I can walk out. I had people tell me that before. But you can't walk off either because if God's got you in his hand, he ain't letting you go. He died for you. He paid for you. He says, I'm not letting you go. Look what he says here. And this is the last thing I want to read this morning. We'll come back and kind of work on back on this section of Scripture because I want to go back in verse 29 and 30 a little bit deeper next week. But look what he says in, in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Actually, I want to back up to uh, verse 29. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, or in other words, he determined beforehand to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those he predetermined would be his, these he called, whom he called, he also justified. That means he saved us. Those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you ever read your Bible, Paul will use this greater to the lesser argument. There it is right there. And he's going to use it several times in this book. But he says, if God didn't spare his son, how will he not also give us all things? I mean, if Jesus died for our sins and he died that we might have life, you think he's not going to give us everything else because he already gave us the greatest thing he could give us his son, right? I mean, what better gift can you give than your son? I don't know anybody's willing to give their son up for somebody else. And then he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who can accuse God's children? It is God who justifies. God is the one who legally declares us righteous. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. In other words, Jesus is the only one who has the right to condemn because he died on the cross for our sins. Only he can condemn. Go back to chapter 5 where Jesus says He judges all people. That the Father's committed judgment into His hand. And so the only people that get judged are the people who are not saved by Jesus Christ. And then He says, 
It is Christ who died, furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus prays for us. And if He prays for us, man, that's awesome to think that God is praying for you and me if we belong to Him. And then He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then He says, He names everything, basically. If you can find something in here that's not named, one preacher said, I'll give you a million dollars. Because it's not here. He says, Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. There's that sheep image again. But he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. You know what that means? That, that word some of your Bibles have translated it. We are super conquerors. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may as well go back to your room, put your big S on your cape and put that shirt on because guess what? Through Jesus Christ, the Bible says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says, For I am persuaded, for we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So it's through Christ that we are able to be conquerors over this life, right? Anything that happens to us, we can handle because we're Christians. Because Jesus lives in us and through us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He named everything, didn't he? He said, nor any other created thing. You know what? There was only one person who was never created. That was God. Everything else has been created. And he says, if God be for you, who can be against you? Nothing. Nothing. What does nothing mean? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. Zero. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in God through Christ Jesus. So, he said, you're safe. Let me put it this way. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, let me put this this way. To know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have to say, God, forgive me. God, save me. Come into my life and change me. Because you know the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. He says in the same section of Scripture in John Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. That means all of us are sinners. But then he says, the wages of sin is death. That means every day when we sin that we get paid a wage for that one day. And that's going to be death. That's eternal death. But if we trust Christ and take that free gift of eternal life and say, God, forgive me. God, save me. I believe that Jesus is the only way. Because John 14, 16 says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the only way to get to the Father. And if you will trust Him and believe on Him to forgive you and save you and to come into your life, then nothing can ever snatch you out of the hands of God. You didn't do anything to earn it. Didn't do anything to pay for it. You can't do anything to lose it. (laughs) It's just that simple. I mean, if somebody gives you a gift, it's yours, right? Unconditionally. 
And and so if you didn't do anything to give it, and God's, you know, it's not politically correct to say this anymore, but God is not an Indian giver. That's what they used to say. He doesn't give you stuff and take it back, right? But that's what they say when we were kids, but it's not politically correct to say that today, so I guess forgive me, but I don't know any other term, but if God gives you something, He will not take it back. He promised eternal life. He promised He'd save you. He promised He'd forgive you. He promised one day He'd come back and get you if you trust in Him and believe in Him and ask you to forgive Him and save you. And you know what? God who promised cannot lie, can He? Say, God promised by Himself. And He promised to Himself. And there's nothing greater than God and so nobody can break that promise. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song. We'll sing number 19 since we're right there next to it. Father, we love You. We thank You. We praise You. And thank You that one day we'll be with You if we've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray today if there's one here that doesn't know You, they're not sure today if they died they'd go to heaven. Today they would just cry out and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. And that they would take you at your word because the Bible says it's by faith. By grace we're saved. Through faith. Faith is the vehicle. And you said if we take you at your word and just believe that Jesus died for our sins, died in our place, and if we trust in Him and Him alone to forgive us and to save us, that one day we'd go to heaven and be with you. So Lord, I pray that if there's one in here that doesn't know you, that they would trust you today. And Lord, we give you all the glory and honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Please help us reach out to those the world has forgotten. Everyone we minister to is locked up in some way, shape, or form. Those in the nursing home facilities are locked up in bodies that do not work in a wheelchair or in a bed. We minister to children and youth who are locked up because of behavioral problems. Some have told us we want to have a real family because their parents have lost or given up custody of them. Other kids are locked up because they've committed crimes. We also minister to those locked up at the jails and the prisons, to those locked up in addictions, to drugs, alcohol, depression, and suicidal thoughts, to those locked up in a variety of other things that keep them from becoming who Jesus wants them to be. He came to give us abundant life, joy, and set us free, and these people that we minister to are not free. Our desire is to show them whatever their background, no matter what they've done, to see how much God loves them. We seek to help them receive forgiveness and freedom from their sin in Jesus Christ. We minister in the local area of Savannah, Georgia, and surrounding Effingham and Chatham area. We have recently expanded our ministry to the Lexington and Columbia, South Carolina area. We do over 2,000 services every year. We hope and pray that you will support us in some way that so we can continue our mission. Go to hisloveministries.net and click on the Donate Now button or send it via regular mail to Post Office Box 1881, Lexington, South Carolina, 29071. We hope and pray that you will do that. Thank you and God bless you. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 8, 32.